brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the February 6, 2024, Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with some quick highlights of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. I'll start with an article that reports a study with conclusions that won't be a surprise to anyone who helps coordinate care for an older relative or friend. This cross-sectional study found that, on average, persons 65 years and older spend three weeks each year, yes, I said three weeks, getting health care outside the home. In this nationally representative group, 11% of older adults spent 50 or more days each year receiving health care services. Researchers analyzed data from the Medicare Current Beneficiary Survey for 6,619 adults aged 65 years and older to assess composition of, variation, and patterns in, and factors associated with healthcare contact days. They found that on average, older adults spent 20.7 days in the year getting healthcare outside of the home, of which 17.3 days were for ambulatory services like office visits, tests, and procedures. The authors note that factors associated with more contact days included younger age, female sex, white race, non-Hispanic ethnicity, higher income, higher educational attainment, urban residents, more chronic conditions, and certain care-seeking behaviors. For example, patients who said they go to a doctor as soon as they start to feel badly were more likely to have more contact days. According to the authors, these results show factors beyond clinical need that may drive overuse and underuse of contact days and opportunities to optimize contact days as a person-centered measure to reduce patient burden. Days spent obtaining health care outside the home can represent not only access to needed care, but also substantial time, effort, and cost, especially for older adults and their care partners. These trade-offs, along with known practice variation in healthcare, suggest that there may be both need and opportunity to optimize contact days for patients and their families. This study suggests some targets for improving how we use these contact days. For example, it finds that half of the days spent getting a test are not on the same day as a doctor's visit, so doctors can do a better job coordinating tests with visits. It also finds that office visits, tests, and procedures are less likely to be on Fridays compared to other weekdays, even if that may be more convenient for patients. The authors of an accompanying editorial say this study provides salient insights on the extent to which patients interact with different components of the healthcare system, but patient preference related to contact days may vary significantly. They note that this study does not provide insight into whether contact days for individual patients are clinically necessary. They call for future research to paint a more comprehensive picture of the circumstances surrounding healthcare contact days and what they mean for patient care. Next is a modeling study comparing the cost-effectiveness of gene therapy versus common care for patients with sickle cell disease. Researchers from the University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center applied two independently developed simulation models to Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services claims data from 2008 to 2016 and the published literature to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of gene therapy for sickle cell disease and its value-based prices. The University of Washington Model for Economic Analyses of Sickle Cell Cure and the Fred Hutchinson Institute's Sickle Cell Disease Outcomes Research and Economics Model simulated the progression of sickle cell disease under real-world-based care methods to estimate costs and outcomes over a lifetime 
from both the healthcare sector and the societal perspectives with and without gene therapy. The models assumed a $2 million price for gene therapy. From the healthcare sector perspective, the University of Washington measure estimated an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $193,000 per quality-adjusted life year, and the Fred Hutchinson score estimated an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $427,000 per quality-adjusted life year. Under the societal perspective, the University of Washington model estimated an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $126,000 per quality And the Fred Hutchinson model estimated an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of 281,000 per quality-adjusted life year. The authors note that both models projected fewer pain crises events with gene therapy over a lifetime, which can offset the high upfront administration costs of gene therapy, greatly improve patients' prospects for long-term employment, decrease or possibly eliminate caregiver burden, and substantially improve recipients' life expectancy and recipients' and caregivers' quality of life. They recommend that future work comparing the clinical and economic effects of gene therapy versus stem cell transplantation will assist decision-makers in guiding patients to the most appropriate and cost-effective therapy for sickle cell disease. The rapid uptake of telemedicine in the early phases of the COVID-19 pandemic is well-documented, yet there is little published literature on the redistribution of in-person and telemedicine encounters as U.S. healthcare systems enter a post-pandemic phase. The next article reports a study that helps to fill this gap. Researchers from the Veteran Affairs Healthcare System analyzed data from the VA's corporate data warehouse to describe trends for more than 200,000 patient encounters between January 2019 and August 2023. They found that telephone and video-based care decreased from a peak of 79% of care in April 2020 to 36% in April 2023. This decrease was mainly due to a decrease in telephone-based encounters. Video-based encounters continued to make up about 11 to 12% of all clinical encounters. As of August 2023, video-based encounters accounted for 34% of mental health, 3.7% of subspecialty care, and 3.5% of primary care encounters. According to the authors, these trends may obscure disparities in access to and use of telemedicine that disproportionately affects older adults, individuals in rural regions, and patients from historically marginalized groups. They advise that future research should consider evaluating quality, safety, and health outcomes of telemedicine in this new equilibrium. The next article reports an analysis of more than 1.6 million emergency department visits for acute pulmonary embolism that found that nearly two-thirds of visits resulted in hospitalization of low-risk patients. The proportion of emergency department visits for pulmonary embolism that resulted in hospitalization remained stable between 2012 and 2020, despite evidence supporting the safety of outpatient management. The study did not identify any patient characteristics related to an increased likelihood for discharge, including established risk stratification scores used to identify low-risk patients. However, patients at teaching hospitals and those with private insurance were more likely to receive oral anticoagulation at discharge. According to the authors, these findings suggest that outpatient management of acute pulmonary embolism remains underutilized despite guideline recommendations. They suggest further investigation of the root causes of emergency department triage decisions 
and dedicated interventions to approve appropriate use of outpatient management, such as dedicated post-discharge clinics. Current guidelines define a glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, below 60 for three months as chronic kidney disease, even in the absence of albuminuria. Estimated GFR using creatinine is usually used in routine practice rather than measured GFR to define stage of chronic kidney disease. An estimated GFR using creatinine below 60 has been associated with adverse outcomes including kidney failure and all-cause mortality. However, there is disagreement about whether this threshold is appropriate in older adults. The next article I'll highlight reports a study that aimed to resolve this disagreement. Researchers studied data from a Swedish cohort of patients 65 years and older with simultaneous measurements of creatinine and cystatin C to evaluate associations in older adults between estimated GFR using creatinine versus estimated GFR using creatinine and cystatin C, and eight outcomes. The authors found that estimated GFR using creatinine and cystatin C below 60 had stronger associations with clinical outcomes including all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, hospitalization, infection, stroke, heart failure, kidney failure with replacement therapy, and acute kidney injury than with GFR estimated using only creatinine, even in the absence of albuminuria. The weaker associations with estimated GFR using only creatinine are likely because of limitations of creatinine as a filtration marker rather than the GFR threshold. Estimated GFR using creatinine and cystatin C more closely reflects measured GFR than estimated GFR using only creatinine. While several clinical guidelines for evaluating and managing chronic kidney disease recommend measuring GFR with cystatin C, this practice is limited in many locales. The authors suggest that the broad range of risks associated with chronic kidney disease at older age is better appreciated when cystatin C is included in GFR estimation. One would expect empathetic care to be associated with better patient satisfaction. To gather evidence to support this expectation, the authors of the next article conducted a systematic review. They reviewed 14 published randomized trials of interventions to promote empathetic care involving a total of 80 healthcare practitioners and 1,986 patients across several locations, settings, and practitioner types to evaluate the relationship of empathy and patient satisfaction. Based on all the studies reviewed, practitioner empathy was associated with the positive change in patient satisfaction. However, inadequate reporting hindered the ability to draw definitive conclusions about the precise effect size. Patient satisfaction is a useful measure because it's been associated with improved survival after myocardial infarction, reduced hospital readmission, higher general quality of care, better patient safety, and other outcomes. It has also been reported to improve medication adherence, and hospital reimbursement is also often linked to patient satisfaction scores. There have been concerns that suicide risk is elevated among individuals diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, but evidence to support these concerns has been limited. The authors of the next article used the Taiwan Nationwide Database from 1997 to 2012 to study a cohort of 18,960 individuals diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. They matched each person with polycystic ovary syndrome to 10 controls based on age, psychiatric comorbidity, levels of urbanization, and income, and compared the rate of suicide attempts in each group using administrative claims data. 
they found a staggering 8.5-fold higher risk of suicide in persons with polycystic ovary syndrome compared to controls adjusting for demographic characteristics, psychiatric comorbidities, Charleston comorbidity index scores, and the frequency of all-cause clinical visits. The elevated risk was evident in both the adolescent and adult age groups. These observations suggest a need to monitor mental health and suicide risk in individuals diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. Unnecessary medical care can harm patients in addition to being financially costly, so effective strategies are needed to curtail overuse that may lead to harm. Next is a report of a cluster randomized trial that evaluated the effects of clinician decision support compared to clinician education to reduce unnecessary care in older primary care patients. Overuse outcomes were prostate-specific antigen screening in men 76 years and older, urine testing for nonspecific reasons in women 65 years and older, and overtreatment of diabetes in patients 75 years and older. Baseline rates were 24.9% for prostate screening, 23.9% for urine testing for nonspecific reasons, and 16.8% for diabetes overtreatment. After 18 months, overuse of prostate screening and urine testing was lower in intervention practices than in the control practices. No significant difference in diabetes overtreatment was observed. The authors conclude that decision support designed to increase clinicians' attention to possible harms, social norms, and reputational concerns reduced some care overuse in older adults. An editorial by Annals Associate Editor Dr. Jody Siegel notes that there are a range of potential interventions that require testing, ideally in trials like the current one. Dr. Siegel says that behavioral scientists approach this problem as being a challenge of individual behavior and seek to impact patient and or clinician motivators that drive overuse of healthcare. Economists approach the issue as being one of misaligned incentives and explore how the supply of healthcare services or local competition or insurance design could be targeted to reduce overuse. Organizational theorists approach low-value care as coming from system failures that will respond to application of tools in the workplace to help clinicians and patients make better decisions at the point of care. Dr. Siegel believes that the most promising interventions are those that consider both micro-level interventions and macro-level interventions that require different levels of agency for the actors. To ease care access during the COVID-19 pandemic, many mental health providers shifted from in-person to virtual care, though concerns developed over disparities in access to virtual mental health care. The next article reports a study that analyzed 2018 to 2021 medical expenditure panel surveys of U.S. households to describe trends in outpatient mental health services by individuals 18 years and older. Between 2018 and 2021, adults with serious psychological distress increased from 3.5 to 4.2%, while overall outpatient mental health care increased from 11.2% to 12.4%. Controlling for age, sex, and distress, the increased outpatient mental health care was significantly greater for younger adults relative to middle-aged and older adults and for employed relative to unemployed adults. In 2021, 38.7% of mental health outpatients received greater than one video visit, including a disproportionate percentage of young, college-educated, higher-income, employed, and urban adults. These findings suggest that serious psychological distress and outpatient mental health care increased between 2018 and 2021, 
However, mental health care increased disproportionately for less psychologically distressed, younger, and employed persons, underscoring mental health care access challenges for older, unemployed, and seriously distressed adults. Imagine you're seeing a 78-year-old patient presenting with mild memory loss. She says, I don't want Alzheimer's. What about those new meds? Do they work? Next is a commentary that provides practical guidance for clinicians to respond to patient inquiries about these new medications with recent or anticipated FDA approval. Adahelm, Laconimab, and Donanimab. I encourage you to read this article if you want to be equipped to carefully communicate potential benefits and harms of these new Alzheimer's therapies to patients. New draft breast cancer screening recommendations from the United States Preventive Services Task Force suggests screening mammography for women beginning at age 40. This is a departure from the more nuanced previous recommendation from the task force, which recommended average risk women start screening at age 50, and the decision to start screening women prior to age 50 should be an individualized one. This recommendation was because the number of deaths averted from screening in women 40 to 49 is smaller, and the number of false positive results and unnecessary biopsies is larger than that in older women. Next is a commentary on the draft recommendations by Dr. Russell Harris, a former task force member, present during discussions of the 2003 and 2009 breast cancer screening recommendations. Dr. Harris says this change is confusing and poses danger for both women who risk overdiagnosis and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which risks abandoning its role in setting the standard for evidence-based medical decision-making. And I'll close with an article that offers important insights for clinicians considering using large language models like ChatGPT in their routine practice. The author's view is that it is reasonable to use large language models for administrative tasks like summarizing medical notes and aiding documentation, tasks related to augmenting knowledge like answering diagnostic questions and questions about medical management, tasks related to education including writing, recommendation letters, and student-level text summaries, and tasks related to research, including generating research ideas and writing drafts for grants. However, the authors say that users should be very cautious of potential pitfalls, including a lack of HIPAA adherence, inherent biases, lack of personalization, and possible ethical concerns related to text generation. To mitigate these risks, the authors suggest checks and balances that include always having a human being on the loop and using artificial intelligence tools to augment work tasks rather than replace them. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned here, and please return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.